Hi, and welcome to Inference, an AI business podcast by Silo AI. I'm Ville Hulko, co-founder of Silo, the largest private AI lab in the Nordics that focuses on building human-centric AI for businesses. With the Inference podcast, we introduce a number of topics and people of the global AI scene that every business decision maker should know. Now, with me today is Patrick Tran. Patrick is the CEO and co-founder of Validio. Validio is a Swedish pioneer of data monitoring. Validio evangelizes a painfully true message that resonates with probably anyone who's worked in a data science project before, which is data is never perfect. Validio builds tools to solve data monitoring challenges in data science-driven organizations, employing some of the most experienced minds of AI and AI commercialization in Sweden. Patrick is a pioneer of data utilization. A PhD by background with stellar track record, he's worked on top management consultancy, helping organizations establish their data strategies and discover issues in data quality. Today, Patrick and Validio work with some of the most advanced data science teams on the market. Patrick, uh, I'm really happy that we could finally make this happen. Welcome. Thank you for having me and thanks for that nice introduction. <laughs> You're overselling me. So I give a bit of a taste to who you are, but it would be great if you could uh, fill in the gaps. Can you tell us a little bit about your background? Sure. Um, I think that you covered it quite well, but I could add some flavor. My educational background, I went to engineering school, took an engineering physics degree uh, with a master's in machine learning. And then I've also got a business background. So I've got a bachelor, master's and PhD uh, from business school. Um, so that's really always my angle when I look at things uh, within the tech world from a very practical business angle, not only from a technical perspective. And as you said, I've been working as a consultant for top management teams uh, many years ago to both educate them on the topic of AI and data, but also help them set their AI and data strategies and also to get started to actually implement those strategies. And that's mm -hmm. kind of when uh, I experienced that every single company, when it comes to the actual implementation, the number one hurdle is data quality, right? If you want to become data driven, you need to obviously rely on data and then the data quality is essential. It's kind of the garbage in garbage out thing that we've been talking about for many years, but it has never been more real than in a data driven world. For sure. And I suppose this brings us to the genesis, if you will, of Validio. What is Validio and what do you do? Sure. I mean, I can give you a short background sort of why uh, I decided to co-found Validio. So. When I help these big organizations as a consultant to get started with their AI and data journeys, after realizing that the data quality was kind of the number one hurdle for all of these companies, and then I mean hurdles to really get started with AI and becoming data-driven for real use cases, not these sandbox proof-of-concept use cases, but the mm -hmm. real ones that creates business value. I mean, after realizing that data quality is uh, the number one hurdle for all of these uh, things, I started to look and search for tools that uh, could help these companies ensure that they have data of high quality. Back then, it was in uh, 2017, you couldn't find any tools at all. So mm. that resulted in me toward the second half of 2017, stopping everything that I did with these companies and to then uh, co-found Validio, which provides a software as a solution tool 
for data quality monitoring and validation. And it's really a tool uh, to help out the data engineers, which is the profession in modern companies nowadays who are responsible for ensuring high data quality in data-driven organizations. So our software analyzes collected data in real time and apply machine learning, statistical tests and validation rules to identify potential issues in the data quality, both on a data point and a data set level. And these insights we visualize on dashboards. And if we identify significant issues when it comes to the data quality, we also send alerts to the users so they are notified proactively as soon as it happens, right? But also, very important, our software enables the users to put in fixes for different kinds of issues in real time as well. So not only do we monitor mm. and alert, but we also fix issues in real time. And I think that's really, really important because when you have data-driven modern companies, they rely on having good data in real time. So it's not sufficient to only monitor and alert, but also you need to be able to fix these identified issues, right? So that's in a nutshell what we do. Really interesting. And that kind of brings us over to the topic at hand, which is spinning from the tagline that you have, that data is never perfect to data monitoring in machine learning ops. And as you said, everyone talks about data, almost everyone talks about data quality, but very few are actually proactively having the discussion about how do we get transparency into it and what are the processes that we go about in fixing those that I suppose Validio and data monitoring in general is trying to shed light into. Um, how does data monitoring work um, on different kind of data types? So having structured data, having sensoric data would be perhaps a easily comprehensible uh, thing to grasp. But how is data monitoring on unstructured data, such as text or images or video? First of all, I think that data quality is a term that needs to be defined. It's kind of like AI in the early days of AI. Everyone talks mm -hmm. about AI, but there is no single clear definition of what that actually is and that's the same with data quality but maybe even worse because data quality is very context dependent right something that is of poor quality in one case which might be organization specific or even use case specific within an organization i i mean something that is of poor quality in one case might be of acceptable quality in another case so I think uh, back to the very fundamental things definition of data quality depends on what you use the data for right and uh, if we take one of the more kind of um, popular examples nowadays, it's of course uh, data-driven decisions. Sometimes you use um, hard-coded algorithms, sometimes you use machine learning models and so on, right? And when you provide these algorithms and train machine learning models, one of the fundamental assumptions that you make is that kind of the data that you build your model on is representative of the new data that you want to apply in your model, right? That's kind of mm -hmm. the essence of being data-driven and using algorithms on new data. And uh, this is a very important assumption because it basically says that if the data and the properties of the data changes over time, it is kind of poor quality if you want to use it in your model that has been trained on the old data, right? That is no longer mm -hmm. representative of the new data. So this kind of property of stability in the data over time is very important here. And it also has to do with, as you said, data is never perfect. And that's something you need to take into account. Uh, if you measure data quality based on, you know, every single mistake there is out there, I mean, mm -hmm. you, you will find a lot of issues. And we all know that data is not perfect. But it's when these imperfections and different properties in the data shift significantly, either to improve or to deteriorate, that's when you kind of need to care. 
So going from this kind of way of thinking about data quality uh, to respond to unstructured data, uh, images, uh, sound and text and so on, in those cases, there are very many different ways to go about measure data quality, but the underlying notion of uh, stability in the data and uh, to be able to identify when uh, things shift in significant ways, th that's really how we go about. So when we take images as an example, I mean, often you use images as data and then you extract something from it, often labels, right? What's in the image? What are the different objects you can see or different boundaries of things in the image? And... Uh, once you extract this metadata from the image data, you get into the world of structured data, right? What objects do you see? And how uh, are these labels shifting over time, right? So th th that's really how you go about when you uh, treat unstructured data from a data quality perspective. Tremendous. That's a really interesting thing to hear. And actually, on the topic of that, could you maybe give us some case study examples or reference cases of how typically data monitoring operations are executed in different kinds of use cases. Definitely. So the most common way to monitor and handle data quality nowadays is to do nothing. To be honest, that's kind of a very, very common way to do things. And I'll give you a very public example because the cases we work with are quite sensitive. So, uh, But I'll give you some juicy public examples that you probably will still get a bit shocked about. So... In 2019, towards the end of 2019, there was a quite big data scandal in Sweden. And it had to do with Statistics mm. Sweden, which is one of the oldest governmental agencies in Sweden. I think they've been around since uh, like the 1850s. So for, you know, almost 200 years. And their only reason for existence is to provide the public, including the government, with good data. And they have... I think the most statisticians and data scientists of any organizations in Sweden. And they are working primarily with data and data quality. They should provide the public with good data for decision making. And um, so this big scandal that happened in October, November 2019, it relates to something that took place roughly a year prior. Because one of the uh, most important data sets that Statistics Sweden collects relates to the unemployment rate in Sweden because that tells you a lot about how the economy is going. And Statistics Sweden decided to outsource half of the data collection regarding this unemployment rate in Sweden to a consultancy company. Before they did everything in-house, then they outsourced half of it to an external party and half of it they continued to do themselves. And uh, all of a sudden, there was a big jump in the unemployment rate. And this resulted in the commercial banks lowering the interest rates. I think the Central Bank of Sweden said, mm -hmm. okay, given that we now seem to enter a bad time economy-wise, uh, we can't uh, see that we would increase the interest rate in the near future. So this had very big uh, implications of high-level policymaking in Sweden. And also the GDP of Sweden is based on this number. But in November 2019, it was discovered that these numbers was totally wrong. This un unemployment rate was totally exaggerated. And that had to do with the data and how that was being collected. So basically, this consultancy firm that got the responsibility to collect half of the data, they used a totally different approach to collect the data than what Statistics Sweden had used historically and that they continue to use for the second half of the data, right? And uh, without even checking the properties of the data being collected, they just merged it and they reported it and it was being used, right? 
And then uh, people discovered it by doing what we at Validio provides in real time. Just checking the data and check for potential issues and strange patterns in the data, right? Mm. And um, yeah, so that became a very big scandal and uh, the GDP of uh, Sweden needed to be recalculated. And, you know, the central bank got new information for decision making of setting the kind of interest rate for the commercial banks and all of that. And the commercial banks needed to update their interest rates uh, based on that as well. And uh, mm. then um, I think uh, even a minister of uh, the government of Sweden got involved in this and said, this is a big scandal, this can't happen. And this mm. minister uh, summoned the uh, general director of Statistics Sweden and told the press that I will request two things. Number one, this must be rectified. These statistics must be rectified, this data. Number two, this minister said, data you must be able to trust. And I think uh, there are two fundamental issues with these two uh, statements. Number one, I mean, once you have collected data, survey data in this case about unemployment rates and so on, it's very difficult to go back in time to collect it again in a proper way, right? So things cannot always be rectified. That's the importance of the real-time aspect, right? As soon as you identify strangeness in how you collect data, you should fix it right away. It's kind of like if a sensor is broken, which collects data about the environment currently. You can't necessarily identify that uh, sensor malfunction a year later and then fix it and expect every uh, bad data point that has been collected to you know, automatically improve itself. It doesn't work mm -hmm. that way, right? So uh, you need to uh, be proactive and identify these issues as soon as they occur. And number two, as we all know, data is rarely perfect. And uh, the statement that you should be able to trust your data is very, very strange, right? It's uh, rather, it should rather be stated that you should have a mindset that you can never trust your data and therefore you should put more monitoring in place and be much more careful of how you collect and interpret the data that has been collected. Those are very rare words to hear now, entering the golden age of machine learning in business right now. So very few people actually have the backbone to go and say, by default, you shouldn't trust the data. You should always be skeptical, but just do your due diligence first. Yeah, I mean, if you, if you have no uh, monitoring uh, or validation of data in place, you definitely can't trust the data, right? And I mean, the monitoring and validation that you put in place gives you more comfort and trust in the data. And it gives you kind of knowledge about the uh, unknown unknowns, right? That happens when uh, yeah. sh uh, things hit the fan. And I suppose a large part of it goes back to the interfacing between the data and the operators themselves, the humans. Because at Salo, we evangelize the message of the human in the loop with a very strong emphasis. And kind of the core element of the human in the loop logic and how that's applied is basically that every single time when there is an anomaly or just a shift in probability of understanding, a human oracle gets queried and the human input comes in as an annotation and the kind of the how unburdened can you make that process? The more unburdened it is, the more real-life viable it is. But I suppose we're basically discussing about the same things here, is when anomaly, then human operator. Get the validation, get the comments in for the real-time stream of the data. Of course, like manipulating and taking a look at pre-existing, like big data sets, basically the same logic still applies at the back end. So let's talk about ownership of data quality for a bit. 
the kind of the bittersweet thing about data is that you know it stretches all the way from the place where the actual business is happening to the back office and even in some case like in the case example that you described to a third party organization so it's actually leaving the natural ecosystem um, and this can at times create some confusion as to who is actually responsible for the data quality and kind of the proper maintenance of it. What's your opinion on this? How should data quality ownership work and who typically owns it today? Very good question. That's one of our favorite questions here at Validio. Uh, I mean, this has changed dramatically over just the recent years. If you look back to 2015-16, if you looked for the role data engineer, you rarely found it. There were a couple of them back then. And now it's the fastest growing job in tech. Back then, everyone talked about becoming data scientists. Now, I mean, if you're listening to this podcast and you're a young student, look into what a data engineer is. And if you're someone who is on a managerial level, who is serious about working with data and you don't know what a data engineer does, then you should stop everything after listening to this and look into that. I mean, I can kind of tell you what happened um, back in 2015-16 when all of these big companies uh, wanted to, you know, become data-driven and uh, work with AI and so on. They all employed kind of professors from academia, right? Because they had strong track records when it comes to data science and uh, research and so on. But we all know that the problem in real life, and I think Silo AI knows this uh, very well, right? The problem when it comes to becoming data-driven nowadays it has very little to do with the data science models and uh, so on, right? It has to do with the data, how to get the data in place, um, how to make sure that the data is of high quality uh, and all of the data pre-processing and so on that goes into that, right? People usually say that they spend 80% of all of the kind of machine learning data science work working on the data. And that's why the role of the data engineer has emerged. They are the people who are responsible for all of that, kind of doing all of the dirty work, so to say, in order for the data scientists to have some good data to work on. But what happened back in the days when professors and the people with PhDs from data science became head of data and head of data science was that we saw no output, right? Because mm. they got stuck with bad data. And they, there is a big disconnect. In academia, we have kind of always perfect data set. There are a couple of data sets that everyone is using. You've probably heard about MNIST and so on. It's mm. the most widely used data set in the world. And in research, you often care about kind of um, coming up with the next best machine learning model and benchmarking that with all of the historical models. And to be able to do so, you want to use the same data set, right? You want to use the exact same data set. Mm -hmm. So back in the days, someone curated these perfect data sets of different kinds and put it on different repositories. And that has been the go-to place for people in academia to work on. So you've never had kind of issues with bad data. You don't even want to change the data too much because you want to be able to benchmark and to make things as comparable as possible. But in real life, data is, as we've said several times now, never perfect. So when people from academia who never thought about, you know, tweaking and changing the data goes out in the real, real world, then they face a big cultural clash. And that's what we've seen. And now, I mean, data engineers are the people stepping up to fix these things. And we, we see kind of very different kind of data engineers. You have people with very different backgrounds. Some of them uh, come from the business side. 
Uh, and uh, often they have studied like uh, finance or economics and know, you know, a bit of statistics and uh, quantitative uh, methods. But then they also bring a lot of domain knowledge because one of the important parts uh, when it comes to working with data and data quality is to understand what does the data represent. Because mm -hmm. as we've already s uh, said as well, data quality has to do with the context within which you're using your data, right? So, so th that's kind of one type of data engineers. And then you have the, um, another one which often have some more engineering background, for example, engineering physics or uh, electrical engineering and so on. People who have the ability to build uh, data pipelines and you know make sure that everything is up and running and to even put in um, do-it-yourself solutions for simple monitoring, right? So when it comes to who is actually doing, who is actually taking the responsibility of data quality, I would say it's the data engineers nowadays. Mm -hmm. And data scientists often do data engineering as well, because uh, if you don't have data engineers in an organization, I mean, then the data scientist needs to solve these issues, because without that, they can't do their own work, right? But then you also have kind of, um, on a more management level, you have the chief data officers, you have the data stewards and all of that, right? But uh, I still see a very big disconnect between what uh, happens on the business side with slides and, you know, uh, data should be... And then they provide a lot of metrics that is very difficult to translate into real systems and real kind of data pipelines. But uh, I think uh, focus less on kind of talking about data from the business perspective and focus much more in, on data engineers and empowering data engineers. It makes sense because in the end of the day, when you talk about a continuous data pipeline, it is more of an engineering challenge than it is a scientific challenge. And of course, you know, at the science side, that's where the data is being utilized among other places. But that's not really the place where you go to first to solve issues with quality, to solve issues that are structural, that have maybe to do with sensorics or kind of the lead source of where the data is being generated or coming from and kind of well, we've all heard the phrase that the best data scientist is the lazy data scientist, where the more of pre-aggregated, pre-curated data sets you can use as a base, usually the better the starting situation is. But once we start to get to the actual data points that truly make a difference, not just for the basic training of the basic model, but the things that actually are case specific, you can't really skimp on that because that's what gives your model the nuance of if it's killing or if it's dying. And going back to the way companies are initiating their machine learning ops and kind of the continuous utilization in more general, I suppose there's bound to be differences how data is already being monitored today. Like before we were discussing about the human in the loop approach versus um, anomaly detection approach. And in many cases, I think data is being reviewed quite sporadically when someone is actively working on it. It's implicit, but it's not systematic. Um, so when an organization is to level up, if you will, or establish their first uh, significant or systematic, rather, uh, data monitoring operations. How does this typically take place? Um, what are kind of the critical factors to consider when you start to implement more advanced data monitoring? So now we're still in the days of early adoption, where a big majority of the companies are kind of denying or kind of not wanting to admit the big data quality issues that they have. And almost all of the companies have data quality issues, right? So it's often when company takes steps to kind of uh, put data quality monitoring and validation in place, it's often um, 
from two types of categories. The first type is in pre-existing, more traditional enterprise, which has been hit in some severe way by poor data quality, right? So they have uh, maybe had some uh, data-driven model or decision-making in place, and that has gone totally wrong based on uh, poor data coming in, right? Mm. So, so th- that's one trigger for companies to you know, get started with that journey. The other uh, category comes from uh, the more modern modern companies that are quite recently founded and now are in a scale-up phase where they start to uh, get a lot of data. And they are much more proactive because they understand this uh, from start and they don't have too mm-hmm. much legacy. So they, they are able to, so to say, do things right from the start, right? And uh, mm-hmm. depending on which category, uh, how you start is very, very different. In the first uh, category, the more traditional enterprises then the request often comes from the, um, from the more senior people in the business, right? Because they are the ones who have been responsible for the bad business outcomes from these poor models and poor decision-making, right? But among the more young companies, the scale-ups, then the decision-making is oftentimes more you know, engineering-led when it comes to the data pipelines. And they often have more data engineers. Uh, they might not even have a chief data officer or data steward, but they have a bunch of data engineers, right? So data engineers, they, of course, see the need from start. I mean, that's the reason why they exist, right? Uh, To ensure that the data is of good quality and that it comes timely and uh, um, it's consistent and and so on. So I think um, uh, it's very different. And the category that I would like to focus more on is maybe more related to the scale-ups because that's kind of how you should do it, right? And uh, I mean, in that space, there are some companies that are more advanced, such as Airbnb and Uber. They work quite a lot uh, with data quality and have do-it-yourself solutions. But the truth is, even though data quality and uh, data monitoring, data validation is very important for every data-driven organization, to build do-it-yourself solutions in a very extensive manner is not the core business, right? They're not in the business of building uh, monitoring tools for data quality. They're in a totally other business. So... I mean, you need to either be very big and uh, have a lot uh, to lose as a result of bad data to be able to kind of afford uh, really extensive do-it-yourself solutions. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what we now see is all of the others who aren't Uber or Airbnb, they are looking extensively in the market for tools such as Validio to help them do that work. Because, I mean, and th- th- that's kind of the discussion when it comes to buy versus build. When does it make sense to build something yourself? And when should you just buy it? And this is a typical area where it makes sense to buy because uh, data quality monitoring validation is very complicated. And um, yeah, now we start to see tools that are at a sufficient level where it starts to get very easy to deploy. And it's significantly better than what you can build in-house. And um, When you talk to these uh, data engineers, what they often have uh, built themselves is kind of the hard-coded rules, right? Based on domain knowledge, you know maybe that the value from this uh, data stream should never exceed some maximum limit. And the minimum value also put a minimum level on there. And that's kind of how you do the monitoring. But that's within the data quality space. We're talking then about the knowns, right? We know that it shouldn't be like this and it shouldn't be like that. You can hard code that in as rules. But what is the scary part is the unknown unknowns, right? When things shift that you can't foresee, 
that's when you need the more machine learning algorithms types of approach and statistical tests type of approach to be able to detect when there are data quality issues starting to appear. That's that's a really interesting point of view. And I suppose kind of what you're saying with the larger, more advanced companies is kind of referencing to also the overall state of the machine learning market and how everyone expected it to be a little bit more mature, perhaps over the past few years than it actually was. Like with the advanced organizations like Uber's Michelangelo or Netflix's Metaflow, like these companies had no choice, so they had to build it themselves. But now that they've built it, many of them are looking to open source it because it brings them no competitive advantage to keep it in-house. But if the community actually starts to contribute, then everyone is winning. So I suppose this is one of the early signals of now in 2021, the emergence of AI toolkits is possibly truly starting to break through and becoming commercially more feasible. And going back to what you said before about kind of the rolling and the ownership, you know, the way that I hear it, and please correct me if I'm wrong, is that there's really no silver bullet or there's no generic solution that a company can kind of easily implement for fixing data monitoring. But instead, one of the best solutions to have is to just have an in-house data engineer, because that person understands the case, that person understands the environment, that person understands the limitations about the data, what the the outlier values may be and what the critical factors about the sensors may be, is to have an engineer in-house and then augment that engineer with the proper toolkitting. Exactly. Exactly. That's how you should look at it. And I, I mean, within our space of uh, startup companies uh, building these kind of tools, there are a couple which have targeted historically the C-level decision makers, you know, the chief data officer, the data stewards and so on. And mm. I think all of them have uh, had to rethink recently because they realized that no data steward, no chief data officer will ever put in a rule to monitor data in a data pipeline. It is the job of the data engineers and they are the ones who have the competency to do it and they are the ones who actually should do it right. So it's really, you know, exactly what you said provide the right tools for the data engineers because they know uh, what they can do themselves, but they also know what they need help with and they are the right people in organizations to apply these tools in an efficient manner. Here, here. We are starting to reach the end of our episode. And as is customary, um, in inference, we'd like to make predictions and I would love to get yours. So over the next 24 to 48 months, now, data monitoring is becoming a topic and it's becoming something that is more frequently being discussed. How do you see the next 24 to 48 months of data monitoring? What are going to be the next developments in this space? Well, number one, our champions, the data engineers, they will grow in popularity, definitely. They will continue to grow as a profession. It will grow much more than the data scientist before it starts to kind of fade out in growth rate, right? So, uh, and I hope that they will get much more recognition within organizations, not just from the tech team, but also from the business teams. That's number one. And uh, number two, I think that we're at a stage now and we feel it ourselves that there is such a big pent up demand for uh, our solution, right? We can't even serve uh, all of the inbound requests that we get, right? Uh, partly because we're quite picky uh, when it chooses to when it comes to choosing the right customers, uh, because, uh, yeah, we can't serve all of them. But the other main reason uh, is, of course, that the demand has exploded recently. Companies have caught up with the reality that uh, data uh, is not good here. And that's the first step we need to take. They have kind of sobered up from this uh, machine learning, AI, model building hype. 
and realize that the issues doesn't reside with the machine learning models, right? It resides with mm -hmm. the bad or good data. And uh, thirdly, I think, and I'm quite certain when I say this, that um, I think that every modern data team will deploy data quality validation monitoring in the coming years. And maybe not in like 24 to 48 months, but within five years. I think that mm. every modern data team in data-driven organizations will have to have something like that in place. Because otherwise, you can't trust your data, which means you can't trust what is driving your business. And that's not an option, right? And with that, Patrick, I thank you so much for coming on. This, I think, has been a really interesting and a really clear-cut conversation. Before you go, a couple of references. Um, first up, um, to find out more about Patrick's work, there's two places that I would encourage any listener to visit. The first one is obviously validio.io. So go there to find out more about uh, data monitoring tools. The second one is that as it happens, and as some of the listeners might picked up some hints on on the very clear narration that you push out. Patrick is also a podcast host on the topic of AI. So Patrick is hosting a podcast series called Talk About AI, talkaboutai.com. So to find out a little bit more about some of the guests and some of the work that has been going there, please do go forth and visit the sister podcast of Inference as well at talkaboutai.com. And with that, once more, Patrick, thank you again so much for coming on. It was truly a pleasure. And for all the listeners, have a great day.